From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Discussing national and international issues, you're listening to Pella Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. Hello, today we're going to talk about uh, the bet noir and the bad boy of the European Union, Viktor Orban, the leader of Hungary, who caved in yesterday over a gigantic aid package to Ukraine of 50 billion euros. Now, he is um, often spoken of uh, Ukraine as a situation where you cannot uh, deal with it militarily and that you need to seek a diplomatic agreement with Russia. Uh, Hungary is probably the most pro-Russian country in Europe outside Serbia. We'll have a Serbian contact talking to us later today. But he uh, will find it hard to spin spin this as anything other than a defeat. he was uh, speaking on Koshut Radio this morning uh, to his loyal supporters in Hungary itself, saying that um, uh, it's mostly for humanitarian aid and that he had his backs to the wall. Uh, the Financial Times, which is a sort of mouthpiece for the European Commission, uh, had cited European officials saying that they were going to uh, dump the Hungarian um, currency, the forint, and basically create an economic crisis in uh, Hungary unless... Uh, Hungary went along with this uh, aid package. What's less clear, I mean, that's clear case of uh, European blackmail. I mean, this is a the, the European Union, which stands for law and order and the uh, rules-based international order, the white hats against the, the Russian and Chinese black hats extorting uh, one of its member states. But anyway, it's unclear, according to Reuters, um, who were on the ground, whether the uh, what's what the fate is of the military aid package, which Hungary is at any rate not committed to, but whether Hungary has a right to veto uh, that one. And it's a far smaller sum, but obviously it's hard material and it is of uh, Ukraine in the uh, highest importance to Ukraine if they actually want to conduct the battle, especially as US aid now seems to be very much in the balance. Um, Orban is, is an interesting character. He um, is under threat uh, in other respects from the European Union and other aid packages because of his resistance to what he calls uh, the European obsessions of uh, gay rights, uh, immigration and war. Um, I sometimes think, and I think many viewers will agree, that uh, Orban and his his foreign minister, Sicato, are the only sane people in the European corridors. I mean, their views approximate to that of the, the average man, the average punter. And he comes out of those meetings shaking his head metaphorically and talking to supporters and talking to those Western media outlets, which will quote him, uh, that the Europeans uh, live in an alternative reality where they think war is a kind of video game and where people don't really die, whereas he takes it very, very seriously. And uh, that the only thing they can talk about are things that don't concern the average European, such as, again, trans rights, gay rights. And... uh, these uh, meek bureaucrats who are unelected and have no war experience, have lived in a soft Europe for decades, are now prosecuting a war in Ukraine with, with uh, very high costs to the Ukrainian public. Now, Orban, of course, is also reliant on uh, Russia for uh, nuclear power. and uh, But I think there's also a long-standing battle between him and the European Union uh, over issue which Trump supporters will be sympathetic with, which is the he's uh, renationalized the uh, Hungarian economy, he's refused to follow the neoliberalism of the European Union, and 
the the control of international banks of the economy, which is uh, the case in the rest of Europe. Um, he was elected in 2010 on a ticket that included a, a sort of nationalist policy, which he felt that the, the socialists and the liberals he replaced had sold out Hungary. And the Hungarian economy has actually done rather well since his nationalistic policies. But again, his interest in that of the Hungarian people do not necessarily coincide with that of the European elites. At the same time as uh, Orban and uh, his fellow European leaders were, were sitting in the bureaucratic institutions of Brussels, these, these vast buildings that occupy uh, a corner of uh, the Belgian capital, uh, there were farmers' protests outside the European Parliament, for which there were elections in May. And I know that area well, having uh, lived and worked there. And uh, there's a place called the Place de Luxembourg, which is a square outside the European Parliament, packed with bars at which the stagiaires and young politicians and assistants of the EU European Parliament gather every weekday evening, especially on Thursday and Friday evenings, to drink and flirt and make contacts, which will stand them in good stead when they cruise on to the next well-paid job in the bureaucratic elite. It's a, it's a very pleasant place. But yesterday and the day before, I think, uh, Europe's populace the, the, in the form of the uh, farmers turned up and threw muck around the place and uh, and protested and set fire to some things and I think pulled down a statue or two. And uh, I know people inside the European Parliament were holed up and were quite anxious. It was a sort of uh, small European version of January the 6th, although I don't think it's going to lead to any prosecutions. But it's interesting what I wonder what Orban was thinking. He might think he, be thinking as he gazed out over this chaos at the, of the European people protesting, he might have lost the funding battle, but he is going to win the war. That is the, the war of the European people against their rulers. And there are elections in May, and I expect uh, all the populist parties, which are against, uh, have a, a lot of them have a peace agenda with Ukraine and do not want to spend more on inflation and do not want to spend more on climate change measures. So we'll see, I think, that the populists will do very well. This is Pelle taylor at TNT Radio. There's a lot going on, so it's important to stay informed and up to date. Get ready, because here we go. At the top, 30 minutes past and when it breaks. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Right, we are going to do a news analysis here with one of the features and important stories of the day. Uh, what's happened in Israel, this sorry state uh, of affairs, where apparently right-wing Israeli settlers have been blocking the uh aid coming in through to Gaza, this starving uh, part of the world, for for, air, for, for starving uh, Palestinians. But apparently, um, the there's been a conflict there and protests, and uh, e even qu some quite high-ranking officials have been uh, trying to block it, and there's been swear words hurled, and there's also quite a general conflict going around there. Uh, our news producer, Basil Valentine, has got more on the story. Basil, what's going on now today? Good day to you, Pelly. Uh, yeah, um, at a time when the rest of the world is saying, at least, that uh, humanitarian aid to Gaza needs to be increased because uh, I think something like four out of every five extremely hungry person in the world at the moment is in Gaza. There is severe risk of famine. Uh, if it isn't there already, I mean, I think some people have already died of hunger. Um, but while that's going on, in Israel, demonstrators are openly advocating 
depriving Gazans of food and water is a method to apply pressure for the release of the 136 hostages still held mainly by Hamas. The enemy mm. is to be killed, not fed, shouted Orit Rosenfelder, who was draped in an Israeli flag at a port uh, in Ashdod, about 20 kilometers north of the Gaza Strip. He expressed the opinion that no one in Gaza is innocent. All the aid that comes through this port goes to support our enemies, he said. And uh, is this to some extent... Go on. Was that Guy Rosenfeld, is he a well-known figure, or was he just a... a no, 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 just a, just a member of the public protesting. Yeah, right. Carry on, yeah. But I can tell you who is a well-known figure. Uh, those are members of Israel's war cabinet who are also reportedly considering limiting the amount of aid reaching Gaza uh, in support of the, um, the protesters. Gaddy Eisenkot, former army chief of staff, and War Cabinet Observer suggested temporarily limiting aid to weaken Hamas. So, uh, you know, absolutely extraordinary stuff. If you've seen what's going on on the ground in Gaza, it is the worst humanitarian situation of the century by far. Mm. Uh, uh, the You know, the carnage is absolutely breathtaking and people are drinking seawater, uh, you know, there's sewage in the streets rotting corpses, people returning to the north of Gaza are finding skeletons in the rubble. You know, I mean, it's mm. a real hellscape. What was happening? Um, there was something about a, a peace deal in, in Paris, which I thought looked like the most promising, but the, the mainstream media in the West haven't covered it very much, but I've seen references it to, to here and there. Do you know what the latest is on that? You know, the Qataris are hoping to be able to announce a truce tomorrow that is when the official announcement will be um apparently the uh, israeli war cabinet has given it the green light uh and so tentatively has hamas and its allies people in the gaza strip were celebrating last night um mm. and some neutral observers regard this as a defeat for israel because hamas has not been eliminated uh, right. The moot point, of course, is whether or not the hostilities resume at any point in the future uh, or whether... Because that's what happened last time, wasn't it? I mean, that the yeah. Israelis actually stuck. We always hope that ceasefires are going to lead to something permanent, but they literally interpreted according to the spirit of the letter, didn't they? And, uh, yes. and they carried on. Yeah. Yes, there was an exchange of hostages and then the bombing and the killing uh, resumed. Uh, we would like to think that the pressure on Western governments to call for a ceasefire is growing. But so far, Joe Biden, in spite of the fact he's barracked everywhere he goes, uh, has resisted calls. And, uh, you know, there's, there's now a permanent camp outside Secretary of State Tony Blinken's house in Virginia of protesters mm -hmm. calling for a ceasefire and barracking him. Uh, making a lot right. of noise when he's at home. Um, far and away, the most powerful and widespread anti-war demonstrations that we've seen this century. But I called this segment a tale of two blockades, because on the one hand, we've got the Israeli protesters blocking humanitarian aid into Gaza, and then also the blockades in Europe by farmers. Um, yeah, tell me about that. Yeah. 
Well, uh, farmers all across the European Union are um, protesting against raised taxes, uh, new environmental legislation requiring them to decrease their use of nitrogen fertilizers, uh, and of course being squeezed by supermarkets these days who uh, take yeah. every last penny so that the farmers are simply on subsistence wages. I mean, uh, uh, one farmer said he makes about 500 euros a month for working 70-hour wow. weeks, which does mm. seem rather unfair. And ever the populist, of course, none of these politicians are perfect, Pally, because uh, Orban is particularly close to Netanyahu. Um, right. Because no. they share the same sort of... Uh, Orban sees in Netanyahu an ally in ethno-nationalism. Uh, right, of course, yeah. strictly speaking, the two causes are completely distinct because you know all the Hungarians are indigenous to Hungary, but mm. the Israelis arrived there in the middle of the 20th century from all over Europe and the rest of the world. Um, but uh, ever the populist Orban, having left the meetings in Brussels yesterday where he caved in over the aid package to Ukraine, uh, immediately started talking about the farmers and indeed talking to the farmers. It's mm. a European mistake that the voice of the people is not taken right. seriously. He said, right. uh, uh, speaking to a channel he doesn't usually talk to, RTL. It's not just relevant to the farmers, but to the ordinary people. They are not taken seriously by the leaders, said Orban. Well, he's, he's surely right on at least that point. I mean, uh, yes, absolutely. even though there's a, I, I can see a parallel with the Netanyahu's and, and Orban. They share this macho, laddish culture and they surround themselves with yes. people who say, think they're kind of rebels against a boring international bureaucratic system. Um, although I think... Yes, Orban, and, the, and they're yeah. both essentially anti-Muslim. Orban's, uh, yeah. you know, understandable. The Poles feel the same way. Uh, yeah. You know, they don't want um, inward Muslim uh, immigration into their countries. And Orban yeah. has been very firm about that. He says, we're a Christian country. We want to remain Christian. We don't, you know, see any reason why we should take Muslim refugees. So uh, Netanyahu, therefore, cozies up to him and says, we don't like Muslims either. So therefore, right. we we yeah. have common cause. Uh, but of yeah, course, yeah. the situations yeah. are completely different in Central Europe yeah. and the Middle East. Well, it's interesting that uh, Orban is the bete noir of the Swedes and has been for years because they're the other pole of progressivism, you know, and they let in a lot of Muslims and completely changed the, the nature of Sweden. And I've actually been to Hungary a few times in the last few years. And it's a, it's a place where uh, I go out in the evenings and I see young women look much more uh, happy, I would say. I mean, I see groups of young girls walking 17, 18 years old, completely carefree and sitting on the keys of the River Danube, necking bottles of wine. And you never see that in Sweden, I think, these days. It's, it's much more tense and nervous to be a young woman. So or Orban could point to that. Anyway, yeah, thank yeah, you very much I, for that. I, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's no, there's, mm. you know, Sweden has deteriorated markedly, hasn't it? I mean, riots, yeah. bombings, gang right. warfare in the suburbs yeah. of Sweden. So, no, absolutely, yeah. Orban's got a point. But Netanyahu's attempt to shackle himself to to uh, yeah, Orban, right. uh, uh, you know, is completely disingenuous. Yeah, yeah, sure. That's uh, That's, well... 
things are not black and white and, uh, no. and uh, i think i agree with you on every point there well i mean thank you for that uh, very very interesting summary of what's going on in the middle east and uh, those uh, comments about the farmers this is uh, Pelinero Taylor show on TNT Radio. TNT's Darren Denslow. Yeah, I'm talking about the illness. Actually, that has done has been doing the rounds. Not have we only seen a uh, a mass influx of people waving their COVID tests online? Look, I got a red line. It's like, oh my god, we're still testing. Or people, you know, trying to encourage others to wear their masks. Um, but there has been a talk of a dry cough. There have been doctors coming out saying we've seen loads of cases of that. Uh, have you been suffering from, you know, a bit of cough and flu or cold or COVID. Well, Darren, I, COVID. I, I just I just did my eighth test oh, and okay. um, I, I'm just going to keep doing it until I get lines and lines. Why? Well, because work's coming back up, isn't it? Digging deeper with D.D. Denslow on today's News Talk TNT. A better business tip from TNT Radio. News Talk Radio listeners are some of the most active and involved listeners of any format. TNT Radio listeners rely on TNT Radio often as their primary source of information. They trust TNT Radio and are highly engaged with the content. If you'd like more information about advertising on TNT Radio, simply fill out your details on our contact page and we'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. Pella Neuroth-Taylor, live from Sweden, on today's News Talk TNT. Right, today we're going to talk uh, with a Swedish professor based in Norway about NATO and war scares in Northern Europe. Um, but before we bring on the guest, I'm going to give a little announcement uh, uh, regarding a man who knows Sweden very well, unfortunately. Uh, we're talking about Julian Assange, who's been uh, in jail for many years, and before that he was in in, uh, in the Ecuadorian embassy. And before that, he was a major whistleblower of this century. And for many people, of course, he is a, a political martyr and a martyr for journalism and the truth of the highest order. And TNT is quite supportive of that. And in fact, what we've got is actually a crucial date for Mr. Assange himself. He's being let out of jail. And there's a two-day public hearing at the UK High Court on the 20th and 21st of February to determine whether Julian Assange will have permission to appeal or whether he will be extradited to the United States, where, of course, he suffers. He, the, he, he might actually uh, be jailed for a very, very long time. So just to let you know that uh, TNT will be broadcasting and following this event very closely at the London Royal Courts of Justice, and we'll be covering both days if required and also filming in other places around london so keep in that in mind and make sure to watch it if you want truth and unbiased coverage of what's going on there now our next guest is a professor who uh, spent decades studying uh, nato and warsaw pact machinations on the northern flank his name is ula Tunanda, and he is a, a sort of um been made himself unpopular in the past because his um his approach to the russian western conflicts and before that the soviet western conflict having started out as a firmly firm cold war warrior who believed all the stuff that he was told uh in the mainstream media he became a professor and an academic based in oslo and started to write and started to talk to quite a lot of people who 
Um, I mean, Oslo was a sort of place where people came through, passed through people, senior NATO chiefs and senior CIA officials and defense ministers. And he was there at the cusp, the end of the Cold War, when there was a lot of frankness on both sides. Both sides let their guard down, former Soviet generals and former Western military and defense and intelligence officials gathered at conferences in Norway and kind of revealed the truth to each other. What really, what was the answer? What really went on behind the scenes? And uh, Ulla Tananda managed to get uh, the US defense secretaries retired and uh, CIA uh, leaders to admit to him that there'd been an extensive disinformation and psyops campaign aimed at Sweden in the 1980s. Uh, using submarines, American and British submarines, to uh, tr to pretending and c carrying out these kind of attacks and showing their periscopes and uh, their and frogmen running around in the Swedish archipelago, all as a part of scaring the Swedish population that the Soviets were about to invade and attack them, which made the Soviets uh, Swedes more pro NATO, although they didn't join NATO in those days, um, and. Uh, to serve to discredit uh, the the Social Democrat Party, led by the Prime Minister Olof Palme, who was a leftist who wanted to talk to the Soviets, and made him seem like a, a traitor. And of course, Palme was assassinated by people we still don't know, but there's been a lot of speculation whether they were connected to the West or there were local assassins and who hated his uh, pro-Soviet foreign policy. So that's the thing that Sweden hasn't really come to terms with and really ought to be more discussed because it's all very relevant today because in the last two weeks, we've had a big war scare coming in Sweden. So my question to you, Ulla Tananda, is, is this the 1980s all over again? Is this another psyops to scare the Swedes or is this a reality behind it? Are we going to have war in Scandinavia, World War Three? No, I, th I think it's uh, very much the 80s once again, but much more, much, much more, uh, much more stronger force actually. And uh, so, what what the U.S. realized was that uh, if they didn't, if the Europeans didn't, were worried about the Russians and Moscow, their influence in Europe was uh, diminishing. So they had to, in that sense, they had to change their position. I, I should also say that it was not uh, the Secretary of Defense who I discussed with, but with Secretary of Navy of the yeah. of United States in the 1980s. But it, it's it's true that there are certain similarities, actually. Uh, and uh, I would say what is important to understand is, uh, on the one hand, uh, the U.S. Uh, way of organizing military forces and defense and the Russian way of doing it. And the Russian way of doing it is to have a, a buffer zone with a, that you control, the near buffer zone that you control, and then beyond that you have a buffer zone that you deny the opponent presence. And uh, so if I if I could just bring up one example from the from the nineties eighties and so on, and it was a we invited a, a general who had been Vladimir Sheremnik, who had been responsible for the military planning for Northern Europe, 
And he he argued, uh, or I mean, he said straight <laughs> that uh, that they the forces in Leningrad was going to take go to Helsinki and so on. Other forces from Petrosavod, Kandalaksa would go into Finland, and the forces from Murmansk would go to uh, Finnmark in Norway. So this was an inner zone, the the zone of control that they needed in a war situation. If there would be a uh, U.S. attack on on Russia, while beyond that, if for example Sweden, if U.S. would use Swedish bases for air bases, they will take out that them, and the same would be for Bude in the north uh, beyond Finnmark. So in that sense, you had like if you know aircraft carrier, the aircraft carrier have a have a sea control area around it where you could have your own uh, naval vessels and so on. And then beyond that, you have a sea denial area where you are able to deny the opponent. And that is the same, actually. So it's it's uh, the Russians want to have an area of control in the vicinity, a neutrality, for example, and and then beyond that, they will be able to take out the bases, and that uh, in the, in the 1980s, it was clear that that you could or 70s you couldn't do that with conventional weapons. You have to use nuclear weapons. So so it was uh, because you could, they will lo- would lose enormous amount of airplanes if they used conventional weapons. So mm. so that was the Russian approach to the defense of Russia, while the Americans wanted to have forward deterrence. But, and they say, you know, we are defensive, so you don't have to be afraid of us. And you put up some missiles close to to Russian territory. And, uh, but from the Russian side, this is interpreted as a direct threat. So this means that these kind of two concepts of understanding of defense clashes, and it will easily lead to a Russian preemptive strike if they feel that the threat is too strong, actually. And that mm-hmm. was happening in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So Sweden, just to summarize it, Sweden to become the next Ukraine at its worst. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that there is no there is no 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 one in russia really thinking of you know conquering sweden or something like that or take over uh, co- trying to control sweden but if there will be us bases in sweden air bases they will take them out i mean in a war situation where you have a major U.S. Russian war. Mm. So and, well, and just, now they have pretty precise missiles to do that. Mm. And, and of course, if it's if it's already escalated to a major war between Russia and uh, and and the United States, that it would likely mean also use of nuclear weapons. Mm. So in that sense. To have US, U.S. bases on Swedish territory is not so clever. Mm. 
Well, I'll just tell you a little anecdote. I'm in uh, Western Sweden, um, which is the land between the two lakes. If you look at a map of Europe, these are huge lakes. They're the two largest lakes in Western Europe. So you'll see them on a, on a big map of Europe. And this area is the sort of the redoubt of this, the, the Swedish Navy, um, Swedish Air Force. They've got several bases here. And we hear sounds of uh, helicopters all night long and aircraft. And uh, a diplomat I know quite well uh, who is retired but has very good connections into the military, he said this airbase could become Sweden's Bagram airbase. But we'll talk more about this after the break. This is TNT Radio. Now, TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with your TNT headlines. US Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has fronted the media for the first time since his secret hospitalization. I apologize to my teammates and to the American people. More mass graves containing victims of genocide have been unearthed in Africa, and it's been revealed the US has built up a supply of military equipment in Australia as it prepares for a potential war with China over Taiwan. The common housefly. Caught in the clutches of the spider's web. Every move it makes just makes matters worse. Then, dinner time. Feast on the captivating stories, videos, and helpful information on our website. Whoa. Dinner's ready. Oh, man. Escape is futile. Just one more video. Get stuck in our web. TNTradio.live. So we're here with Professor Ula Tananda, who has decades of experience studying and writing many books about the security situation in Northern Europe. Ula, what do you make of these uh, predictions of imminent war? First in the Swedish media, then by Swedish politicians at the annual defense conference up in uh, Northern Sweden. Then in the British press, in the Telegraph the weekend, there was war is coming. I mean, no ifs and buts. And then the German built, I think, re- reproduced a German study saying that they, you could expect a, a Russian attack on the Suvalki Gap, which is the area of Lithuania, which is a NATO country that separates Kaliningrad, which is a Russian enclave, and Belarus. What do we make of all of this? Are you worried or is it just scaremongering? I think it's very much scaremongering. It, it's a... Uh... What might happen and what they might use is a large uh, exercise, steadfast defender. I think, I think this is a, it's, it's very special because it's, you know, starts in, uh, in February, in the first February, and then goes on to May. You know, it's a very, it's a very long time for an exercise. And, uh, but what's, the Western side and the British, for example, and so are worried about is that uh, that Russians will will be able to move forward. I mean, what what uh, the Americans said also uh, a couple of a week ago, a couple of weeks ago, that uh, the Russians may win the war in a time in you know weeks time or months time if not we come in with more weapons or more uh, more support and uh, they are worried about 
the the Russian uh, the Russian uh, for, forces taking over actually the Ukraine forces, and then so the question is what will then the Western forces do, and they might then enter Western Ukraine, and some people, I mean, my impression is that that uh, the the NATO forces are divided between the British on the one hand and the Americans, French. German on the other, and the British are supported by the Balkans and uh, and possibly some Nordic states, and also Poland and Ukraine primarily. So this is a and this divide goes back already to the start of the war. So you had this. There was one uh, one man who was called Jevan Karas. He was a actually very closely linked to the Nazis in the, or he, he, some people consider him a direct Nazi actually. And he, he was a youth organ, leader for the youth organization of Svoboda, who was, you know, using Nazi symbols and so on. And, and, uh, but he said that the NATO forces were divided and the Ukraine, the British, Polish, maybe, and uh, the Balkan, Baltic uh, states, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, was in favor of trying to dismantle Russia, to to make Russia into several countries. And uh, this Karas said, you know, already this was already in I think twenty eighth of February, a couple of days after the mm. they after the Russians went in. That we should, we have started the war, and we will go, and we will uh, make uh, <laughs> Russia into several pieces. Several pieces, Ula. The, the British don't have much of an army, and they don't have much of a navy, um, and they're at a long distance from Ukraine. It's hard for them to get access. But what the British are expert in is in using the media, using psyops, using false flags. Do you worry that something like this will happen here? That the British will bounce the Americans into a war by by doing something with the Ukrainians, perhaps an assassination of a Western leader, or carrying out a, a so-called genocide on Ukrainian territory, or something like that, which will compel the West to act and do something aggressive? Yeah, I mean that's it's clear that uh, that the Americans are much more cautious. At least the Biden, the Biden, not maybe some of his advisors are not so cautious, but uh, uh, they they are they realize in Pentagon, for example, they realize the risk of a nuclear exchange that could happen, and and uh, and the British are in that sense less realistic, I would say, and uh, and they could easily trigger something and i don't know what will uh, what will happen i'm not sure if this uh, this uh, event around uh, around kaliningrad would uh, you know trigger a war and so on but but still of course we don't know we don't know and it's clear that the british are willing to go much further than the americans will 
Right. And they are not they are not so safe. I would say. I mean, it's it's a the the Russians could take out any base in Britain if they want to. So that's a, right. they have the the there is a change now in military technology that you have very very long range missiles that are very very precise. Okay. Well, Ula Tunanda, Professor Ula Tunanda, thank you very much. And we hope to have you on again soon because these are very, very serious developments that could happen. But you have been warned and we must keep an eye out and be aware that there could be false flags. Thank you very much. This is Pelle Taylor. We're going into break. TNT Radio. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. Last week when Karine Jean-Pierre was asked about the position of Joe Biden when it comes to late-term abortions, she had the phony rhetoric ready to go. What I will say is majority of Americans, majority of Americans wants to see their rights protected, wants to see women have their rights protected, wants to be able to, wants, want women to be able to make those deeply, deeply personal decisions on their bodies, on their own, not politicians. That's what majority of Americans want to see. And so the president's going to stand with majority of Americans on this issue. Do those unborn babies have any rights then? I'm not going to get into that specific. I'm not going to get into that question. Rights for unborn babies? What are you, mad? <laughs> but let's take a look at how Americans really feel about the issue of abortion. This is from Gallup, May of last year. Only 34% of Americans believe abortion should be legal under all circumstances. 34%. A majority, 64%, say limited circumstances or not at all. And in the same poll, only 22% of Americans believe third trimester abortion should be legal at all. It just shows that Karine Jean-Pierre and her leftist buddies are a bunch of liars. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on TNT. You ever heard of a polyp? Sounds like a rare species of toad. Actually, it's a lump that grows inside me, your bowel. Look, I'm pretty sure if you had a strange lump growing on your forehead, you might get it looked at, right? But when they're growing inside me, nothing, nada. And the polyps I get can lead to Australia's second deadliest cancer. So, until there's a way to make them grow on your face, it's up to you to get me looked at. Got it? Coming to you live from Sweden, you're with Pella Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. So we're going to pivot from one end of Europe to the other, from Sweden, which is about to join NATO, to uh, Serbia, which is a sort of holdout uh, against the West in the region and uh, is maintains quite good relations with Russia, probably officially the most pro-Russian country in Europe. Um, but we're going to see, we're going to take the temperature of what's going on in Belgrade. And we're talking to Nikola Mikovic, who's a writer for CGTN, which is a Chinese network, and writes very astute and observant commentaries on geopolitics. Welcome, uh, Nikola. Tell us a little bit, is uh, Serbia supposed to be the most pro-Russian state in Europe? But tell us a little bit what's actually going on on the ground. Uh, are things changing? Uh, is Vucic becoming more... Uh, pro-Western, or was it always pro-Western? Or what's going on? I think it was always pro-Western. Nothing significant happens on the ground, uh, and I don't think Serbia is uh, pro-Russian because it's not in position to right. be pro-Russian because it's virtually surrounded by EU and NATO members. Uh, right. And it, it's interesting that you asked me this question because here in Serbia, I'm 
blacklisted by virtually all media, both pro-government and opposition media. So thank you for, for hosting me and for giving me the opportunity to discuss the situation in Serbia. Although um, what's happening in Russia and Ukraine is um, my um, topics, those are major topics that I cover. Uh, but when it comes to Serbia, um, there are some developments in Kosovo. Um, although it's, I think it's a matter of time before Serbia uh, de facto or implicitly recognizes uh, secession of uh, Kosovo. Uh, and um, I think it's Can I just interrupt? Inevitable. Why are you blacklisted? Yeah, sure. I mean, black truth tellers are often blacklisted. Oh. I don't know, which I could know. I never got the official uh, confirmation, that's just uh, unofficial some information that I got. Um, but um, in, in my own country, I'm just not allowed to discuss not the situation in Serbia because that's not uh, my uh, that's on the periphery of my coverage but I'm not supposed to and I'm not allowed to uh, discuss developments in Russia and Ukraine I don't know why I, I would like to know I would like to find out um, and um, but I do as you said I, I do that job for CGTN and for other uh, media that uh, I cooperate but, with but your articles you're quite pro-Ukrainian and this that's fine, but I mean your your stance, and if the fact that you're blocked no. suggests that that's not a comfortable view for for the Serbian uh, public, is that right? I'm, I'm not pro Ukrainian. I'm not pro Russian either. I'm just pro facts. Right. I write about facts. Right. Maybe maybe that's what they don't like. I think the point is that I in this country, uh, what people want is a pure propaganda. It doesn't matter if it's right. pro Western, pro Ukrainian, pro Russian propaganda. It's supposed to be propaganda, and I'm just not right. propagandist. Um, I right. care about facts, and uh, I guess right, sure. that's that's the last thing that um, the authorities and the opposition in this country need. Uh, maybe that's the reason uh, why I'm not so, desirable in. So Serbia this propaganda is there a common single narrative that the government and their friendly media are trying to push? Or it's pretty complicated. In in some pro-government media, there is a pretty strong pro-Russian propaganda, while in other also pro-government media, there is a pro-Ukrainian, pro-Western propaganda. So. Uh, Basically, which he can he can be a pro-Russian politician or pro-Western, whatever it takes. It's it's he, he's uh, the leader of a big so-called tent coalition, and uh, there are pro pro-Western uh, parties and pro-Russian. Uh, uh, he just gets all the votes um, from from both sides. It's it's a pretty smart move, uh, I must admit. Uh, but mm -hmm. generally, when it comes to Serbian media, uh, there are both pro-Russian, pro-Ukrainian narratives and when it comes to the population i'm i'm pretty sure that the vast majority of the serbian population they they still take the pro-russian um mm. narrative and pro-russian position so they that does not mean that they're anti-ukrainian um no, no, they no. just uh, they're not happy about the way that uh, the west treats serbia which is why they uh, they tend to oppose the west and they support russia uh, is serbia um what are the relationship with the EU? Does Serbia want to join the EU? And is Serbia putting pressure on you? I uh, Just to say a little, I saw um, one study, correct me if I'm wrong, that shows that Serbia has actually grown faster outside the EU than your, your sort of longtime rivals, Croatia, inside the EU. And although you were poorer 20 years ago, you've almost caught up with them. Is that true, that you, you, you've, you're prospering outside the EU? It's the official narrative in pro-government media. Uh, I'm not quite sure about that, to be honest. Uh, mm -hmm. What I, I'm absolutely sure is that Serbia will not join the EU anytime soon, if at all. Mm -hmm. uh, officially, yes, it seeks to join the EU, but I think it's the EU that, that's not interested in um, in Serbia joining the bloc. 
not only Serbia, but other uh, countries in, in the Balkans. Um, at this point, as you know, the EU is uh, preoccupied with its internal uh, problems and uh, there's simply no no space for um, for such political maneuvers. So uh, not there will be no new members anytime soon. And uh, that's, mm-hmm. that position allows Serbia to um, well sort of balance between the EU and uh, China and Russia and the United States and the EU. And so, um, mm-hmm. and I, I cannot say that it's, uh, there's a lot of uh, prosperity in this country. I mean, if you compare it to uh, the so-called third world and maybe fourth world countries, yeah, it's pretty good. But generally, um, I'm I'm not that satisfied, uh, unlike most people, because uh, the, pro, uh, the pro-government coalition uh, won the election that, that were held in December last year. So I guess most people are satisfied. So I'm, I'm not one of them. Hmm. Well, I'll just tell you a little story. I haven't... Um... I was in um, Serbia during the Yugoslav Wars in the early 90s. And I think a lot of my geopolitical stance, uh, which is kind of critical of, of the West, is that I was an unapologetic supporter of uh, the UK mainstream media because I worked for them and I uh, I wrote for them in the early 1990s when the war was going on. But I was always held back. I mean, some people uh, who w- went to Bosnia and Sarajevo and drank at the Holiday Inn and, and had, uh, you know, the fantastic journalistic adventures and wrote about it. I was always, I, I was actually m- much more pro-Serb than uh, anyone I knew. Uh, and But I found that uh, Serbia was a much more civilized and, and European society than uh, than we taught by our propaganda. And uh, because we were taught that Milosevic was literally Hitler and uh, all these cartoons, uh, cartoons are a very effective way of spreading propaganda in, in our quality newspapers, had the Serbs literally as animals, you know, with, with the guns and and, and beards and uh, and re- like a bit like uh, ISIS a generation later. So we really demonized you guys. And when I saw people Serbia for myself, I thought, hmm, maybe we shouldn't uh, believe what we read in our newspapers. Anyway, um, but Serbia is. Um, do you so do you sort of trade with China? I mean, you work for CGTN or you write for them. Do you, do you say get some beneficial? You're a conduit. You're a sort of east versus east and west hub, as it were. What what um, what? How do you benefit from being an, a, a, a sort of a place in the middle? Do you have uh, air, air contacts with uh, China or and Russia and uh, special trade deals with them? Uh, yes, I, I have just to have to point out that I don't work for CGTN. I'm just a contributor, but I'm not employed sure. there. Yeah. I'm just a yeah, okay. freelance journalist. Uh, but yeah, there are uh, direct flights with both Russia and China. Serbia is the only country in Europe that has direct flights with uh, with Russia. Um, and that it's possible only because the EU allows Serbia to have um, direct flights uh, because it yeah. can simply prevent Serbia from, from doing that. Sure, but, yeah, yeah. I guess it, it has its own reasons why it allows Serbia to, to preserve that position. Uh, and uh, yeah, you mentioned that the Serbs were demonized in, in the 1990s, and uh, I agree with you absolutely. Uh, they still are to, to a certain extent, not not as it's not as bad as it was in, in the 1990s, but still that, that's a pretty strong anti-Serb narrative. Serbs are always the bad guys, no matter what happens on the ground. Um, I don't know if that will change in the future. Maybe it will, but I don't think that will happen during um, our lifetime. Um, and when it comes to relations between Serbia and uh, Russia and China, um, as I said, the EU, the European Union and the United States, they just allow Serbia to to balance between uh, Moscow and Beijing and uh, the West. Uh, yeah, there are free trades agreements with both Russia and China. 
Um, mm -hmm. And uh, when it comes to China, it is definitely Beijing that benefits from from that um, agreement because it's much more powerful economy than Serbian one. Uh, and uh, they do have uh, companies that operate here in, in Serbia. Uh, and uh, when it comes to Russia, it does control just a segment, just a small part of the Serbian energy sector. Uh, and uh, that's it. Now, its political influence in, in Serbia is uh, very small. Russia does not right. control any um, NGOs. Uh, it does not control any media. There are some websites like the Sputnik or uh, RT website mm -hmm. in Serbia. Mm -hmm. um, but that's also uh, when it comes to uh, the influence in, in this country. Um, I'm. It's my impression that uh, the West has a dominant influence. Uh, China. It has economic influence, that's for sure, but political one is it's uh, pretty weak if you compare it to to Russia and I'm sorry to to the West, to the EU and the United States. Um, so yeah, just, the, um, the country's trying. I I mean, uh, if you grew up if, if part, post the post the Cold War from 1990 to, to today, um, you will grow if you and you read the Guardian and the Observer and the Times and the New York Times. Every few years, another Hitler comes on the scene, right? Another genocidal Hitler. So, you know, Milosevic was Hitler of the Balkans, and then you had a Hitler of the Middle East. And if you look further back, you know, uh, uh, the uh, NASA, who's the leader of Egypt, the British press were calling him the Hitler of uh, the Suez Canal. So there are a lot of Hitlers to go around. And then, of course, Gaddafi was the Hitler. And then this, this, these Hitler designation is followed by an attack on these countries, which destroys them. So Libya still hasn't uh, recovered from uh, from being having their leader called Hitler. And of course, then Assad was the Hitler of the Middle East you know, in 2015. And of course, Putin is now the Hitler of the world. And of course, with the difference is that he can't be attacked directly because he has nuclear weapons. So you as a victim of the Hitlerization process, could you say something that the Western media stop calling everyone Hitlers all the time? That story is old. Do you agree with that? It is old for you and me, but for new generations, it's not old. They hear it for the first time, Putin is a new Hitler. So it's um, working again and again and again. Yeah, and I think it will work in the future as well. Um, right. Because why would they change it if it works? It's a, from from their yeah. perspective, it's a pretty efficient propaganda just to demonize someone and then to, to target that country. Um, and although I would have to disagree with you, uh, they can uh, attack Russia directly. I mean, Ukraine is doing that. It's uh, striking Russian territory on a daily basis. And uh, um, if, if this war in Ukraine, um, if it escalates, then it's not improbable that in certain NATO members, neighboring countries such as Poland or Lithuania and uh, Latvia and so on, they can, they can do the same thing and uh, strike Russia directly, regardless of uh, the fact that Russia has nuclear weapons. Um, I cannot rule out that kind of uh, outcome in, in the future. Um, so nuclear weapons are there, yes, but as Bignam Zhuzhinsky reportedly once said, uh, Russia can have as as, as many uh, nuclear warheads as it wants, but as long as it, its elite has like $500 billion in our banks, I don't see the option when Russia will use those missiles. Um, so the situation for Russia is very difficult. You're, you're quite, uh, unlike uh, many commentators on this channel, you're, you're quite sanguine, you're quite optimistic about Ukraine's uh, possibilities you're saying they're stronger than one thinks is that true well ukraine is heavily dependent on the west 
uh, it does have capacity to inflict serious losses on Russia, but I don't think the West will allow Ukraine to to win this war. So I think the Western policymakers, they just, they're not interested in such an outcome. I think they want um, basically both countries to, to lose. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, if Ukraine, if Russia gets defeated, which is possible, I'm, I'm not saying that will happen, but it's possible theoretically. If that happens, then uh, that does not mean that Ukraine will win. So it's it's not very easy. It's pr- it's pretty complicated situation actually. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, generally, since Ukraine is backed by the entire Western civilization, yeah, it is in, in a better position than Russia that mm-hmm. that has only uh, Iran and North Korea that are um, openness. Mm-hmm. Actually, North Korea is openly supporting Russia, but Iran is doing what, like uh, right. trying to camouflage its its actions. Um, so yeah, I, I see Ukraine I, as a country that. I saw an interesting article, which I don't often see in, in the Western media, which I, but I think is very true, because you said something like, well, I mean, because we, in the, in the Western media, personalizes, it's Putin, 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 Putin. But actually, he has his own domestic issues. I mean, he has people on the right, to the right of him, who want to go further than he does. So do we really want to replace him? And what will, what, tell us about the Putin's right-wing opposition within the regime, if you like, because that's quite perceptive. Well, there is no any opposition because they've all been arrested uh and uh yeah he, he's not the one i don't think he's the one who's in charge because the, there's elites that, that's ruling that country so it's i think it's yeah from the western perspective it makes sense to focus on putin but in reality it's not putin who's who's their uh, new russian tsar and who's uh telling all of them what to do no it doesn't work that way so there's a, a circle of uh, powerful oligarchs and uh, officials who pull the strings in the Kremlin and Putin is one of them, of course. Um, and uh, when it comes to the opposition, uh, there are certain f- factions within the Kremlin. Uh, some of them are pretty powerful and some of them are not. Some are pro-Western, some are so-called pro-war party. Um, and uh, at, at this point, I think they, they've reached the consensus that Putin should, should stay there and he will definitely win the the election. And you also mentioned the West. I think from the Western perspective, it's crucial that Putin stays in power uh, for as long as possible, because as long as he's in in charge in Russia, Russia will have um, zero chance to win this war, because in my opinion, Putin is not interested in such an outcome. Not only Putin, but the elite that controls Russia. Um, They're not fighting this war uh, in a way that that guarantees victory. They just want to um, achieve maybe some of their uh, Goals proclaimed yeah. in February, but not all of them. Well, that's interesting because again, we, we we're taught that Putin is this uh, Hitler type, but you agree with me, even though we have slightly different views on other things. That Putin is, relatively speaking, almost a dove in the Kremlin, and there are people within the Kremlin who want to go further and more aggressively, which of course might trigger a Western intervention. And I'm so they are, right. they are yeah. right. I think they they make them the minority in in the Kremlin. I think most. Um, most people in, in the Russian ruling elite, they, they would like to, to find a way to uh, reach some kind of deal with the West. Uh, but I don't think that's going to work this time because the West just wants to, to finish this conflict in, in its favor, not to make any compromise uh, with the Russian. Okay, and, and Nikola, we'd like to thank you very much. And we'd love to have you on again. And incredibly interesting and wise perspectives from Belgrade. Thank you very much. This is TNT Radio. Thank you. Thanks.